welcome to the Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Uh, a guy I worked with at one of my previous companies, Exosite, uh, Dan Sloman, I think he's at Etsy now, he was really into coming up with like the best way to react to operational issues. So he, I don't know if he'd come up with this idea or if he was just like kind of building on it, but there's this idea of differential diagnosis that doctors do, right? This was featured heavily in like House, for example, you know, how they all sat around a room and... Yeah, it's lupus. Right, yeah, that, <laughs> that whole situation. That's what they were doing was differential diagnosis. Somebody would propose a, a possible issue and then everybody else tries to basically shoot it down or support it, right? Depending on whether there's evidence one way or the other. And so you eventually either figure out that, yeah, that that potential diagnosis, that hypothesis was not supported by the evidence, uh, so we can eliminate that as a cause. And you kind of work wh- your way down the list of hypotheses until you arrive at one that is the most likely case. Mm-hmm. Um, and all this, the way he set it up is we were using HipChat at this place, but it really works on any sort of chat platform, was that he built a bot that spun up a new room for a particular issue, invited all the people that were like important for that particular problem, and you could add more people later if need be. And then there were commands to like start a hypothesis and attach information to it and all that kind of business. So you could like start an issue and then have like all the steps that occurred towards troubleshooting it and all the conversations that happened as a log after the fact. So you could do a postmortem on the problem and have all this sort of like the life of this whole issue and how steps occurred and when what points they occurred that all that business which is super helpful to be able to come back after the fact and say like okay this problem occurred at 10 20 p.m the first person started looking at it at you know 10 25 or 10 30 and we started looking at this issue and this issue and we eventually worked it down to this one problem we're able to close the issue out at like you know 10 45 or something whatever the case might be you can see after the fact exactly what happened and if mistakes are made or somebody does something that exacerbates the problem like you you can see that and factor that into your postmortem so you can be like okay well in the future we need to make sure that like we communicate better on this step or whatever the case might be it's not so much like a blame game situation as it is like figuring out what went wrong right like how do you prevent that from happening again and it was also i think you you would have somebody that would claim kind of ownership of a step or of part of it. So that person had to kind of like a sign off on like this problem has been dealt with, but also they were the person that was supposed to be executing on a particular thing. So you don't have multiple people in there stomping on each other's shoes. Right. 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 Well, and adding to the noise and getting each other's way and like, yeah, sometimes just having too many people in there, it's super counterproductive. You can't see what's going on. You can't follow. Like even if you're going in the wrong direction, in order to determine that, like someone has to sort of quietly raise their hand and then help point you in the right direction. Like it doesn't help to everybody to shout, you know, stay cool and collected. It's all right. We have a process and we'll work through it. Kind of kept things organized and, and neat and clean. And yeah, there was definitely a atmosphere of like, don't just pump noise into this room. There's a process. If you see something that's important, call it out. But otherwise, you know, 
stick within the bounds of the workflow here and let people that are responsible for a particular thing do their job you know don't hop in and do your own thing even if you maybe know more about the system like you can offer to maybe hand it off or whatever but let people that are responsible for a particular part do that part and that prevents people from accidentally like changing something underneath somebody else that's trying to troubleshoot a problem and suddenly it works and they don't know what happened like you know that doesn't help people later solve the issue people have to know why a thing actually was fixed in order to prevent it from happening again so yeah i i don't know how our conversation got so deep into the ops (laughs) world but (laughs) it's all right that's how it goes i do think that if people have an opportunity to spend some time doing you know kind of the the ops side of things it's it's well worth it it sucks to be on call and it sucks to be working on issues in a kind of high stress environment. But if you're at a place that has a process like this or that is amenable to a process like this, it definitely brings the stress down. But the real benefit is that you start to have a real understanding of the impact that your application design and the decisions you make in your Elixir applications actually impacts the system as a whole or the maintainability of that system, the observability of that system. Like if you build an elixir app and you never actually interact with it in an op setting you're not going to know that like the metrics you gave them are useless like you have to troubleshoot an issue before you're like wow how did we miss that metric like that's super important if you are never in that position you can't hope to be like aware of when you're making bad decisions on the application side and it really does require a two-way street there. Whether ops and engineering are separate departments or the same department doesn't really matter. You have to have people that understand the impact of you know logging and metrics and alarms and all that, whether they're beneficial or just spurious and adding to the noise. Well, this is why, like, I mean, application people have to be involved in this. This is something I'm really, really big on because at the end of the day, even if you're building some silly rest endpoint, you have SLOs, like you have objectives that that service has to fulfill. And realistically, you have different SLOs on a per endpoint basis, like for that service. Like there's probably endpoints that are more important than others. The example I use a lot is like, you might need four nines for your login page, but only two or three nines for your user profile page. Like who cares if you can't get to the user profile page, but login should never be down. It's like the Amazon shopping cart thing. Like we'll be wrong before we're down. (laughs) In order to know that level of stuff, you have to have application people involved in that monitoring process. And this is also why tools like New Relic are garbage because they don't tell you anything interesting about your business. They don't tell you how your how your stuff is actually working in regards to those SLOs because you, you just can't do it. You can't customize it enough. You can't like really get in there and actually look at the real metrics enough to know that. I mean, they work fine for small apps. And like if all you have is this one app and it's kind of all it's all equivalent. Like it's either up or down. It's like just one big Phoenix app or whatever. Like it's fine, whatever. But if you've got a whole host of different services, a whole set of things you need to account for, you have to build in that level of specificity into the application itself. Every application needs different logging and different metrics. And and I think that's why you have to have the application people involved. They have to know what's there because you don't know what the important metric is and until you don't have it (laughs) yeah you definitely need to be talking with like whoever the project management side of it is be like 
pay, you know, from a customer perspective, whether it's internal customer or external, doesn't really matter. You know, what are the objectives that we're trying to achieve and what are the guarantees that we have to provide? Because those are going to be converted into dashboard items and like Grafana or whatever that you will then tie individual metrics to say yes we're meeting this or no we're not and tie alerts to and that kind of thing and I think that like you're saying yeah if you don't have the ability to link metrics from your application somehow into a number that represents like yes we're achieving this or no we're not whether that's we want to be able to support you know a hundred thousand concurrent users regardless of what they're doing you need to have a metric that shows you how many concurrent users you have and alert that says like, hey, the application is starting to error out at 50,000. You need that for all the objectives of your system. And too rarely I see people define the objectives, they define the metrics. But oftentimes the metrics are kind of like whatever they felt might be useful for troubleshooting issues, but they're not metrics about the thing you really care about. What what defines the system being healthy or available or useful? Those are the things that you need metrics to support. And then if you're not talking, you start adding too many metrics and then your metric stuff is slowing your system down for metrics you don't need. Yeah, if you're pumping in way more data than you actually need to troubleshoot issues or identify whether you're meeting your SLAS low guarantees or not, yeah, you're just wasting bandwidth data, CPU, all that jazz for no real benefit. I've, I've heard often in the embedded world, people say, you know, if you have a, a system that's slowing down, it's always logging. Yeah, logs are another dangerous one. Yeah, if you're writing. I freaking hate logs. <laughs> They're not even fun. Like going through them is terrible. I mean, there's such a there's such a necessity, but they suck so much. Like everything about <laughs> yeah. them sucks so much. <laughs> I don't know how many issues I've actually solved because of logging out. Exception output, yes. But information that was logged that was not part of an exception has almost never been particularly useful because there's never enough logs to give you this step happened, then this step happened, then this step happened. Or if there is, it's at too high a level or it missed some steps because like somebody changed the line of code to call some other part of the system that didn't have that logging. So now you don't know that that whole thing happened. That's why Erlang's tracing stuff is so useful. Like if you're seeing some problems, you can just remote shell in, turn on some targeted tracing and actually see exactly what's happening. That's way more beneficial to me than logs. And if you have good metrics, like you almost don't really need the logs because the the problem is usually self-evident. Like you had a burst of requests in this time period and correspondingly there is a burst in memory usage and that triggered the auto memory killer or something like that. Those things are almost more useful for troubleshooting issues than logging output. Logging output is more useful for like this exceptional request came through. We weren't really sure what to do with it, but here it is maybe stripped of sensitive information later on, maybe take a look at this. And so you log that as a warning or whatever, and you can come back in and, and figure out maybe like, were we supposed to handle this? Was it truly broken? How did we even get this thing? That's to me what logging is for. But too often people just log like literally everything. All the things. <laughs> yeah. And there's just noise. You can't sort through that in any sort of reasonable amount of time. Even after that, like you get these ridiculous log services that then need this ingestion pipeline to be able to handle them all. We have a problem where like we can barely log stuff because we blow away any pricing tier available on any any service that we might be able to use almost instantaneously. You pretty much have to self-host your log aggregation for sure. We're way beyond what we can pay somebody to do for us in a lot of ways. So we just have to like 
dial in our logging into very specific things. But even then, like once you get the logs and then you got to shred them like into, into something that makes sense. Like you have to learn how, you know, first of all, you have to learn how Lucene works, which is fine. <laughs> I mean, whatever. That's a useful tool. <laughs> but then secondly, you have to write parsers and all this crap to extract all the useful information. And then they have to be able to like restructure the logs so that they make sense in context. It's just a nightmare. I think they're good for post-mortem sometimes, but especially in multi-node systems, your log messages, you might have two that pertain to your problem and then 50 to other stuff and then two more back by the time the scheduler gets around to doing anything with it. So That's why tracing IDs are so important, is you need to be able to connect the dots between the systems, not just in one system. And even within one system, you have different components, particularly in Elixir where you know everything is processes. You need to know, like, the work for this request went through these different components of the system. And when we were logging, like, here's the thing. The internal tracing tools in Erlang is one thing. I'm talking about tracing IDs in your logs. So, like, there's a unique one that's tied on entry into the network. And then everything that's related to that request or whatever it is has that unique ID tagged. We've been investing pretty heavily uh, in in time, I should say. Uh, Not really money so much. I guess it's kind of the same thing, but we've been investing in using open tracing a lot more. And that's, that's looking like really, really promising so far from a really high level standpoint, because I think most of the problems, at least in our experience, most of the problems we have is, is very much to do with how systems interact with each other across multiple nodes, across multiple different isolated services and that kind of stuff. So being able just to like open an APM chart and see oh, here's when the request came in. Here's how it hit the front door. Here's where it went to this other service. Then it went to this database and then it came back and then it erred. That's pretty That's pretty dope. Yeah, that's super useful for sure. Particularly if you're the one making the request, you know it failed, but you're not exactly sure why. Being able to actually hop into your logging and see the exact step at which things went through the system and what data was carried along with that request along the way is is definitely helpful. Sometimes all it takes to figure out a problem is like knowing where a thing crashed and burned. You know, a complex system that's composed of a lot of microservices, knowing just that piece of information is super handy. As long as you know that for sure, if it made it somewhere, it got logged. Right. That's the other problem. Yeah. It just goes into like the, the AWS black hole, never to be seen again. <laughs> yeah. You almost need an on entry, on exit thing for each system so that, you know, when a thing leaves, you know that too. Because if it got dropped into the ether somehow, you need to know that it wasn't that source system that dropped it. It was something else. Unless the source system was supposed to retry, in which case, then you still have the answer to your problem, right? <laughs> Observability is hard. And especially in like these big systems, like it's it's complicated. Yeah, it's basically a, a never-ending journey, basically. But making it part of your projects, your application design early on makes it way easier later. You know, if you're trying to bolt it on after the fact, it's going to be super painful. And every once in a while, you have an application or you decide like, hey, we're going to add this thing into our system to aggregate some metrics or logs or whatever. And so you do have to rework things. But if your system is designed to kind of abstract out where those things are written to and, and all that, but you're making sure to log and, and track metrics for the things that are important and push them out to that abstraction, then it doesn't matter so much where it actually ends up. It'll end up wherever it needs to go. And there are problems to solve there, like <laughs> are you writing uh, metrics to something that can handle the throughput of the metrics that you're trying to write and all that jazz. But just do stuff 
see if it works. If it's not working for whatever reason, there are solutions to those problems. That's how all software engineering works. It's just try it over and over again until you get it right. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like my, my coding methodology. Just keep trying over and over again. I'm just glad that bridge engineering doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> those people use those people use math and stuff. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. We don't know anything about early bridge builders. Okay, they might have done exactly that. That's true. <laughs> it's true. Forty years after they started building the first bridges, were they still just building them until they figured it out, or that's basically us? Oh man, I have so many other things I want to talk about. We're running out of time. Oh, that's that's how it goes. I still have an intern question, but I think it it will spin into a very large conversation. I want to talk more about other config things. I have other questions about stacking theory stuff and more specifics about how you're doing the monitoring with Ecto. And I, I mean, I want to talk more about use cases I have where I need to be able to change configuration on the fly, like more specifics about that. Uh, like I need to be able to like toggle like an etcd, you know, bit or whatever to, to stop, you know, a certain feature or whatever. So, uh, for now, like, so now that you've got Distillery 2.0 out, what's next? Are you taking a break or are you just going to focus on something else on one of your other myriad libraries? <laughs> he is writing a book. Oh, yeah. You're yeah. going right, to finish your book. How do you sleep? Like, how do you, you, you have like, <laughs> you have uh, so many important open source libraries to this, to this silly community. And, and you also have a book and a, pr- and presumably a life. Like, yeah, so. presume, presumably. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I I will probably be trying to address some of the things that I've been ignoring for the last month because I was trying to get this release out the door. But there's not too many things. Like, I don't have any ideas sitting on my head right now that I, I need to get out in, like, form of a new library or whatever. But a lot of that's because, A, I really want to finish this book and just get that out of my hair because it is a nightmare trying to convert what's in here into words that people will want to read. Thankfully, my editor at Prague Prog is super good about helping me work through that stuff. So, But that's kind of like the big priority for me, I guess, is just trying to finish that because I've been sitting on that now for months. And then once that's done... I kind of want to trim the fat a little bit on some of the things I've got out there. You know, some of the libraries have kind of reached stability, so to speak. I don't really have to pay attention to them, so I just kind of keep updating them bit by bit or let PRs handle that. Some of the others, though, they are active, but I'm not in a position where I'm, like, actively using them. I have ideas for some of my things, but... I'm really looking for people that are interested in taking those over and fixing active issues and evolving some of those projects. And I can come back in and, you know, help participate in those things, but really finding maintainers for some of that stuff, either as primaries or just helping me close issues out. And I've had some people offer on like Timex and Swarm, but I really want to trim things down to the point where, yeah, I, I don't have as much bandwidth spent across 10 different projects. Because it really does soak up so much of your time to kind of get back into the context of a particular project to troubleshoot an issue, figure out what needs to happen there. 
you've got all the change management around that too. Like, is this going to be a breaking release? Is it not breaking release? Like, how does this tie into dependencies upstream that I know are using this library? That kind of thing. Those things take a lot of just a lot more time than you'd expect, I guess. It's hard to be a project manager on multiple projects. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it is more of an investment than you necessarily think when you're getting into open source. I know it was for me anyways. It's not onerous necessarily. Like sometimes it can be. When I'm going through like my yearly burnout phase, for sure, I'm like, <laughs> I hate this. But it always comes back around where like I get excited about stuff again, whether it's because I had some idea or I'm just not feeling burnt out anymore. It's just a, a natural part of being a software engineer that's working on stuff outside of work. And even if you're just doing stuff at work, burnout's still a thing. If you're working on a project that you just are not excited about doing menial stuff, like it will drive you nuts slowly but surely. It's really the worst. And then you feel like at least it will, it's been that way for me. And I just feel guilty and I feel, I don't know, I get really complicated emotions about 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 all that. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's very, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's super complicated. And to me, it's it applies such a negative overhead on my life i mean that's why i i, I wrote uh, the, the blog post recently about like hey i need somebody else to maintain wallaby now part of that was it had become such a, a big project and such a time commitment that i knew i wasn't putting into it that it became a negative burden on the rest of my open source stuff it wasn't even that i could just ignore it and then go focus on the raft stuff or go focus on whatever else it overrode all my ability to do all other outside work because I, I just felt so sort of demoralized by it. That's totally how it works for me too. Like if I am feeling burnt out, it's not on one project. It's all of them. Right. Uh, there is no specificity to it. It's just because in general, I'm not excited about programming. And the only thing that works for me on that is to do other things. I will do whatever else... I want to do, you know, I've been doing more and more woodworking, trying to build up a little workshop here. And so that helps me kind of like get, I'm still in like a builder's mindset, but just doing something totally not programming related or just getting outside, you know, doing whatever. I mean, you should be doing that That's anyways. probably healthy anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for sure, if you're like dealing with burnout, just spending more time doing things like that reading books like that's another one that works wonders for me because i love reading so i'll just sit down with like a stack of three or four books and by the time i get done with all of them i usually feel kind of reset it just depends it's always a time-based thing for me and i never know how much time it is just one day i wake up and i'm like yeah let's do some programming <laughs> yeah that, that's how that goes <laughs> I find when I do those other things too, I get I get ideas that make me excited about programming again. That brain break sometimes leads to a You need that seed, yeah, that thing that just sort of grows in your mind eventually you're like, Man, I really need to see that happen and so you just start working on it and then that process of working on it gets you excited about all sorts of programming again. And that's what work happens for me is like I'll get burnt out on everything. Something will get me excited about programming again. And then I'll go through and work on all my projects. And it's not like I immediately then get burnt out again. It's usually like I'm excited about stuff for a while. Things sort of reach an equilibrium. And then at some point, burnout happens again. 
I, I feel like some people think that burnout is like this thing that happens sometime in your career and it's just like that's it for me it's yearly it happens every year such a clock by it mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i mean that's that's why we have vacation right <laughs> yeah for sure yeah and if you're working in a place where like you're either not getting a vacation or you're like not taking it that's going to be part of your problem you gotta do something about that but I don't know that that's necessarily a problem for a lot of people that have burnout. For me, it's not so much that I'm not taking vacation. It's just I get too invested in what I'm doing. And so it becomes much more just a slog than it is enjoyable. Maybe I'm just all I'm doing is writing bug fixes and just maintenance stuff. I'm not actually generating new stuff, new ideas. When I am too long in that kind of a phase, that's when it starts to happen. I need to be working on something interesting while doing the boring stuff i mean those these things have to fulfill you too or it's just more work right now you're just working three jobs or whatever (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly work becomes just a paycheck yeah it should be part of it should definitely be like i'm excited about either like a product that you're building or just the challenges that you're dealing with sometimes it's just having a problem and trying to solvent is all it takes to be into it again that's what works for me it's cool to have a cool project that maybe i could tell everybody else i'm working on and and they get excited about it but day to day it's it's really the challenges and and the problem solving that i find well that'll lead to burnout too is just being like i need to come up with something super cool like no you don't just find something that's interesting maybe out of that will you know become some kind of cool thing but more likely than not, you'll just work on that cool thing, finally arrive at a solution, feel really good about it, maybe share with some people, and then that's it. Move on to the next thing. To me, that's just as fun as writing a project that a bunch of people use. More fun, really, because I don't have to care about There's it. There's no pressure. Right. <laughs> Once people use it, then you're like, well, crap, now I'm on the hook like, right. to take care of this thing. Yeah, I've also reached a point to where... I'm like, if I can't get to the maintenance tasks on this project, there's a reason why it's open source. Feel free to fix it. Please contribute back if you feel that's a good thing to do, but I'm not going to pressure you into it. Just fix the problem you're having, and when I get around to it eventually, maybe I'll fix it for everybody else. But if you put too much stress on yourself to be like the arbiter of all solutions for every problem that everybody has with your library, then you're going to burn yourself out so fast. It's just not worth it. You have to be willing to be like, well, sorry that that's happening to you, but I don't have the time to deal with that. Zero issues is a nice thing, but, but don't make it your goal. It's impractical. It will never happen unless your project is like fairly minimally used or inactive. Very niche. You're almost always going to have a few active things. Well, and you always have to keep in mind, it's like, if, if this person who's asking you to fix this thing can't be bothered to fix it, but yet their business depends on it, then they're the ones whose priorities are out of line because it's literally free. Like, they're basically <laughs> asking you to just give of your time to fix a thing in their business. I do think that if somebody uses that as their thing, like, but I'm using this at work and, you know, it's super critical to our business. You need to solve this. Then I don't feel bad for those people at all. But if people are using one of my libraries, it's often because they do not have the time or the expertise to deal with whatever problem this thing solves. Right. They, they don't have time to build distillery on their own. They, oh, they don't even know how. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's lots of reasons. And if the expectation is that if it's not working for them, that they have to learn all that and make it happen. I'm not expecting that of people. 
I will expect it that you do put in your due diligence if you have an issue and you're opening an issue and you want some help. Like, I want to know that there's problems so that I can work on solutions, but I also expect people to put in some effort if they want a solution fast. And if they're going to demand a solution, well, then I might just be like, I'm not doing that. There's definitely been people who've been like, hey, when can I get this in there? And then I co- and then that's when I look at the PRs. And I'm like, oh, you didn't add tests to this. So once you get some tests in here, then I'll be able to merge this. When I've put in issues and not necessarily known how to fix them myself, I will often put in there, I would like a note that says, I would love to work with you on this. Or if you can point me in the right direction, because I have no clue what is going on or how to get there. As a maintainer, like even if I don't have time, oftentimes if I see somebody that's in that position, like obviously wants to help or is willing to put in the effort, like I'll go on my way to help people like that. Like it, it happens all the time on like, slack or irc or whatever somebody has an issue or will ping me about something and clearly they're ready to do whatever they can to help me fix it and so in those cases if i can i will set aside the time and work through problems with them because i know that they would do it themselves but they don't have the expertise or whatever to fix it themselves so they need my help to make that happen and, and you might be giving them that entry point to add 10 more fixes that you don't have to do later. Right. Like <laughs> by working through problems with people, you get the ability to teach them how to troubleshoot certain kinds of issues. And, and in the future, they may be capable of fixing things that they came to you this time for. But in the future, they don't need to do that. They can kind of dig in, fix it themselves, and then come to you with an issue or a PR or whatever. But yeah, I do see a lot of, like Chris was saying, I see a lot of people that open up PRs with changes and like no tests, which is fine if the thing they're changing already has tests. But if it doesn't, like, great, you've you've made a change. I Presumably you've tested it to see if it works, but I don't know that. And now I have to maintain the side effects of whatever this is. With distillery, I'm less, I guess, annoyed by it because the test suite there is not friendly, I guess. And integration tests, it's really a pain to test the tools. That's It's a big tool chain to try to get all running. You've got a bunch of stuff in Shell and then you've got the Elixir side of things and you're spinning up nodes and you need to like connect to them and interact to see what's happening. Like, I've gotten it better now. It's definitely better than it was. But, you know, if you're coming into it fresh, figuring out how to write a new test for some specific case is is non-trivial. A lot of the issue with the shell side of it, I run shell check, so I at least have linting and identification of issues that happen. But, you know, there's not great ways to test shell on a bunch of different platforms and that's where a lot of the issues come out you can either bundle alerts or you can't bundle alerts you can bundle alerts and then deploy it to the wrong platform you can you know run shell on an environment that doesn't have proper shell and so now we're using bash but even you might have different versions of bash that don't support some weird syntax thing i decided i was going to use you know there's lots of things like that that just sort of add up on the shell side where it's just manual testing always manual testing yeah i run um the grove pi library so it's for a grove pi connects to a raspberry pi and allows a bunch of i2c devices to connect so people add a device to that and i don't always own them 
<laughs> and I can't go buy every piece of hardware out there. So nurse testing seems like a giant boil the ocean problem. Like it's it's like like testing anything in nerves has got to be a boil the ocean problem. Like because there's just too much hardware. You need all the hardware. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, half the time somebody puts tests in, and then I go find the documentation for the the device and not that i have a lot it's a very beginner library so there's not a lot that comes in but when it does then i go read the documentation for whatever component they're trying to add support for and then compare that with the tests that they wrote and it's still for me half the time is just a guess on whether i should actually merge it or not but i assume that they're using it on a project because otherwise they wouldn't like you you don't go support a plug-in component to your nerves device that you don't actually own normally so I hope before they've pushed that to me that they've actually tested it on hardware. And, and so then I just am double checking with documentation that, you know, maybe some math is is in there correctly. And then I just mash merge and hope. Let go and let God. Yeah. Just go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, one of the libraries I wrote recently actually was for clustered tests uh, because that. I've got a few libraries that do clustering stuff and even distillery has a lot of tests that run in separate nodes and I got really sick of all the boilerplate associated with that. So that was kind of what spawned that. But just in general, I feel like X unit out of the box does not have good tools both for that and for just testing like things that interact with the outside world. Like in distillery, we have to run a bunch of automated tests in different configurations and test the results. And all that ends up having to be done basically by hand. And it becomes kind of fragile if you don't hit all the ways that that can fall apart. If you look actually at that XUnit clustered case library, it's super complicated. Like there's a lot there. And it's doing more than you would necessarily need to do to set up clustered tests. Like you can also go look at like Phoenix PubSub or something to get an idea of how small it can be. But when you want to spin up a bunch of nodes in parallel that you can execute execute anonymous functions on and you want to be able to test like nodes coming and going from a cluster and all that, pretty soon it evolves into a real beast. That library ended up being way bigger than I was expecting it to be. But on the flip side, like writing tests with it now feels a lot more pleasant. Yeah, I ended up building something similar for some of the RAF stuff I ended up doing uh, using like Slave or whatever in RPC to like start spinning up other nodes and then using the uh, like code loading off of like the VM you spin up when you run your uh, X unit tests that becomes like the code server, right? Same sort of idea. Like you load all the code from that remote thing or whatever. The only thing that it doesn't work with, which is one of the things I found out uh, and is really annoying is that the code server will not send along modules compiled in memory. Oh, okay. So it has to have a file on disk, and it has to be obviously a beam file on disk that matches what you have in memory. So if you've manipulated it somehow, you're not going to get the right version. What happens when you do that is you'll invoke that code, and it'll blow up on the other node as like a bad fun or something. And it's because the bytecode is different. And that's if you even get it on the other node. Like in the case of things that are purely in memory and not on disk, there is both no way to get the beam bytecode from in memory and write it to disk. And there's no way to pass that in memory bytecode to another node, which to me, it seems like a huge failing in the code server. I don't know why that doesn't exist. It's like a security thing, maybe? I'm not sure. It could be, but security has never really been a huge part of the distribution 
they they kind of just it's an open door for the most part even the defaults for distribution are like yeah if you want to listen in and and log on do stuff feel free enjoy (laughs) it's definitely a thing that caught me way off guard because i thought for sure and i had actually worked around a little bit i think the one case where i had run into it previously like i was adding the code path manually for some modules that weren't already on the code path of the testing server because i thought like hey i've loaded this module into memory like it should just work but it it didn't because it it couldn't pass along that in memory thing um so the code paths have to be the same and then i ran into this in memory thing which is just just nuts if i think that could be fixed it probably could be fixed i don't i didn't look into actually trying to do that but I did dig all the way through OTP to figure out why the code server wasn't doing what I thought it was doing. And that's sometimes what you have to do, right, is is dig through. Erlang source code is actually surprisingly easy to navigate, unless you have to dig your way into the C side of it, which is much more obtuse. Which is ridiculous. And formatted in the most ridiculous way ever. <laughs> uh, what's that style? I forget what that, that style is called. It's... I don't know. I don't remember. It's It's wild, though. I've had somebody explain to me why formatting works that way, and I mean, I get it. I also don't like it aesthetically, but <laughs> I understand the reasons behind it. It probably made a lot of sense when you could only see 80, cur- 80, 80 columns on a terminal or whatever. Yeah, that's you. But I think it's also just like stacks the important things about a particular function on top of each other rather than having them all in one line. So it does make, if you follow that convention everywhere, it does become easier to read. But it does look horrible also. It's really bad. It's really not good. <laughs> really not good. Uh, C code in general is like that. It's just. That's true. <laughs> it's always somebody hates the way the current stuff is written. Yeah. Uh, that's, how you, that's how you get a Go format tool built in. Yeah. You do that long enough and then, yeah, you get Go format. They'll just build well, it. You, if you look at the same format long enough, it, it's, it, it, you get used to it. It's kind of nice. Yeah, I, I do appreciate the automatic formatting stuff. I have at times been a little frustrated with mixed format because, but then I realized that ultimately, like, I can fix the things that it initially formats weird and then it'll be, like, less bad. But kind of the default way that it deals with things that, like, are too long seems arbitrary. You have to you have to go in and fix them and then rerun the formatter, you know, and then it looks properly format it again but if you just run the format and you're like i'm just gonna use what it did which is what i've done a few times yeah you know that's not great so well unfortunately i have to run i i was getting ready to do that i'm glad i'm glad you said it first because <laughs> <laughs> i i really didn't want to go no this but, has been fun uh, i want to do this again i have so many other yeah. things to to bring up that i want to talk about yeah this was a blast i would i would definitely talk and you're about. gonna be at elixir conf yeah, I will be at ElixirConf and uh, the Big Elixir, too. I don't think either of you are probably going to be there, though, right? Cause I'm not going to be at Big Elixir. I got too much going on. I, I I really wanted to, and I I did. I started to bring it up to my wife, and then I was like, nah, I think I'm just going to keep this one to myself and not talk about it because she'll, she'll kill me. <laughs> I just couldn't make it work this year. But yeah. yeah, I mean, there's too many conferences all happening at like the exact same time. Wh- yeah. Whoever is organizing all these things really needs to spread them out a little bit more. I mean, the big elixirs in November, so it's like not really so much. Yeah, uh, yeah. Problem it's, there. It's a, they picked a good time. That one's, but that one's pretty good. The rest yeah. of them, I think, are a little bit more of a, of a toss up. They're all in September. 
basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like pick one or two of them unless you happen to live like somewhere really convenient to get to all of them. But yeah, I mean, it's been great, guys. I really appreciate you having me on the show and, and talking about all this stuff. I yeah. Should do it again sometime. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Thanks. I would love to have another one. So I should also send you some of the links. I think we're. Yeah. Yeah. Send us the links. We'll about. get them in the show notes. And then um, awesome. that way people can, can read over it. I think there's going to be a lot in there. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Probably. 